0: including the use of firearms. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is Episode 268. Hello, listeners! Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, your guide to the fantastical world of Metamore City, you can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I share a piece of my fiction with you. I'll also tell you about my latest efforts as a writing professional. More about that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 9 in my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, our two teams of operatives moved ever closer to a direct confrontation. Daniel and Victor secured the package that they have been sent to smuggle into the city, a small and unassuming box among hundreds on the incoming skyship. Victor used some clever misdirection to focus the rest of the deckhands on a different package, courtesy of a forged government seal. The crew boss sent two of the security guards to ride up to the skyship aboard the cargo tender, where they will provide an escort for the marked package. In reality, both men are mercenaries, working with Victor and Daniel, who will provide added muscle in case someone tries to steal the package. But unbeknownst to Daniel and Victor, Brian's team is already here. While Brian used his hacking skills to cause a minor malfunction aboard the cargo tender, Dell and Trace ambushed the tender's pilots in the locker room. Posing as a replacement flight crew, they slipped into the cockpit and lifted off, heading back toward the skyship, where the Syndicate's mysterious package is waiting. Making the Cut A Novel of Metamore City Written and Read by Chris Luster Chapter 9 As Daniel had predicted, the package with the MID seal caused a stir among the deck monkeys as the two mercs carried it aboard the cargo tender. The workers leaned in close to try to catch a glimpse of its shipping label, but there was little in the way of human-readable information. All of the details about the cargo were contained in the scanner code, and the reader guns didn't share their secrets with the person actually scanning the package. Victor's accomplices kept the dock workers at arm's length for the sake of national security— so the men had to be content with loud speculations about what the crate contained. In all of this commotion, the small parcel sitting at Daniel's feet went entirely unnoticed. He had strapped in quickly when they finished loading the tender, watching from the stern of the vessel while the mercs guarded their decoy near the front end of the cargo bay. Eventually, the crew chief came in and yelled at his men to get into their seats so they could take off. Reluctantly, they tore their eyes off of the mysterious crate and went to strap themselves in. Victor sat down next to Daniel, his expression grim. Daniel gestured toward the decoy package and nodded encouragingly. Victor smirked, but his eyes still looked distant and troubled. The airlock snapped shut behind them, the docking clamps released, and the shuttle began moving slowly back down toward the skyport. After a few seconds, Daniel noticed something odd. The wind noise wasn't as loud as it had been on their two previous descents. "'We're going slower this time,' he murmured to Victor. The small muscles around Victor's eyes tightened. "'Keep an eye on the box,' he said, unstrapping himself and climbing carefully to his feet. "'I'm going to check up front.' Okay, everything looks good here, Dell said. Brian, take remote control, please. A red light lit up on the instrument panel, and the words, Remote Guidance, appeared on the head up displays. Set for descent, Brian said. Just don't ask me to land it like this. Relax, Cap, this won't take long. Dell turned to Trace. Can you get a scan on what's in that crate? I want to have some idea of what it weighs before I try moving it. Trace leaned back and closed his eyes. Just a sec, he said. He stretched out his clairvoyance toward the cargo bay, past the two guards and into the crate sitting in front of them. He felt past the layers of packing material, watching as the shadowy, indistinct forms of the crate's contents appeared before his eyes. He dialed his focus in more tightly, and suddenly the forms sharpened. He laughed. Fruit! he said, opening his eyes and grinning. There's nothing in there but fruit. Dell raised an eyebrow. Decoy. Decoy. Trace closed his eyes and scanned the cargo bay again, looking for anything unusual. He found two things that caught his attention. First, one of the deck monkeys sat apart from the others, back near the tailgate of the cargo tender on the port side. He was tall, blonde, and pale. Not vampire pale, but he still had the look of a man who hadn't gotten enough sun lately. A ghoul, perhaps? He was fidgeting and very carefully looking everywhere except at the small package that was wedged between his boots. The second thing he noticed was the tall black man coming toward the cockpit. He had a combat knife tucked up his sleeve, a small pistol in his pocket, and death in his eyes. Look sharp! Trace said, pulling out his own gun and climbing out of his seat. Trouble's coming. Brian sent a ripple of acknowledgement. You in position, Fiona? Affirmative. Ready when you are, Dell said. Trace gripped the handle of the door that led from the cockpit to the narrow corridor beyond. The black crewman had been delayed by the crew chief, who looked upset that he was up and moving around, but now he was out of the cargo bay and in the corridor. As soon as the door to the cargo bay swung shut behind the man, Trace turned the handle on his own door, pushed it open, aimed, and fired. The other man was quick. Trace had to give him that much. He ducked and rolled as soon as Trace began to open the door, and the first shot went over his head. He came out of the roll and into a crouch, his gun in his hand and tracking toward Trace. He squeezed off a shot, but Trace's precog showed him where the shot was coming. By the time the crewman fired, he simply wasn't there anymore. Trace crouched low and sent a shot toward the man's legs. The man leapt out of his crouch, rising too high and far too fast for it to be natural, and fired a bullet at Trace's head. He ducked behind the door as the shot went off, letting it ricochet off of the heavy steel. Too fast, he thought. Stretching out his senses, he opened up his precog, took a deep breath, and leapt into the corridor, lashing out with the butt of his pistol on raw instinct. The gun connected squarely with the crewman's jaw. He had been rushing toward the door as Trace opened it, and his enhanced combat senses timed the blow perfectly. There was a loud crack of steel on bone, and the man staggered backward, stunned. Not sparing a second to think, Trace aimed the gun and fired, hitting the man in the gut. The crewman collapsed to the floor, gasping in pain. Trace fired a second round into a kneecap, and the man let out a sound like a tortured animal. Motherfucker! The man gasped, curling up around his wounds. He coughed and spat up blood. Trace callously retrieved the man's knife and gun. Stay put and I might let you live, he growled. Dell came out of the cockpit a second later, his gun drawn and his eyes on the door to the cargo bay. They'll have heard that," he said, not slowing for a moment as he passed Trace. He was right. Before he could reach the door, it opened from the other side and one of the guards spilled through, his gun tracking. Trace felt a momentary stab of fear. Dell had telekinesis, but not ESP, so he couldn't sense the air molecules around him well enough to harden them into a bulletproof shield, like some teeks could. They were in the middle of a narrow corridor with no cover. He needn't have worried. Dell might not be able to form a PK shield, but his power was considerable. He stretched out his free hand forcefully toward the attacking thug, as the gun was brought to bear against him. There was a ripple of air distortion, and the guard was thrown backward by a blast of force that drove him through the doorway and into a stack of crates behind him. One of them struck the back of the neck, making a sickening crack. The guard fell and lay still unconscious or dead. At the same time, Trace darted forward and fired as he came around the corner, his precog putting the bullet squarely in the middle of the second guard's forehead. The big man joined his counterpart on the deck, and Trace turned his attention to the rest of the room. The deck monkeys had all unstrapped themselves and taken cover behind the crates and boxes, the crew chief was closest to Del and Trace, and he held up his hands, his face white and his eyes wide with terror. "'Please,' he said, his voice shaking. "'I got a family.' "'Listen up,' Trace bellowed, silencing the man. "'My partner and I are here for just one thing.' He nodded at the two crumpled guards. "'There's a stolen package on board that these bruisers were trying to smuggle in to their boss in the city.' He grinned fiercely at the chief. We're here to take it back. Cooperate, and we won't hurt any of you. Trace's danger sense tingled in warning, and he spun out of the way a split second before a fist would have connected with his head. Daniel cursed as the breed thug dodged out of the way, spinning around into a defensive posture. He couldn't understand it. He'd approached quietly, hiding behind the stacked boxes, and he'd come at the guy from his blind side while he was distracted, and still the man had dodged the attack. It was like he had eyes in the back of his head. Murderer! he shouted, ducking in fast under the man's guard and landing a jab-jab-reverse-punch combo. The breed countered with a knee strike and a right cross, which Daniel blocked and answered with a sweeping kick that knocked the bigger man to the ground. Daniel dodged past him and hit the wolf morph with a bulrush, driving him into the wall and knocking the wind out of him. The theriomorph snapped at his throat, but Daniel had spent years sparring against his friend Dell and knew how to deal with wolf morphs. He grabbed the man's whiskers and yanked on them hard, making the sensitive nerves at their roots scream with pain. He followed up with a hard punch to the tip of the wolfman's nose, which elicited a yipe, A wolf's nasal bones weren't as vulnerable as a human's, but a fist there would still give him five hells worth of pain. Daniel pulled the man's gun out of his hand and pressed it against the underside of his jaw. You aren't taking anything today, you son of a bitch, he spat. There was a sharp click-clack of a gun being cocked behind him. Don't get stupid, kid, the breed said. Judging from voice, Daniel estimated that he was a good two meters away. Too far away to be disarmed from Daniel's current position, but still so close that there was no way he could miss, especially given the accuracy he'd shown when he shot the guard a minute ago. "'Don't you dare move!' Daniel said, his voice raw with anger. "'I'll do it! I'll kill him, I swear!' "'And then what?' the breed asked, his voice deep and serious." It sounded familiar, and Daniel wondered if he might have met the guy somewhere before. Look, kid, we didn't ask for this. Your buddies were trying to kill us. Now two of them are down, and another one's in that hallway with a bullet in his gut. Put down the gun, let us take what we came for, and we'll let you go. Your friend's in a lot of pain, but if you work with us, you should have time to save him. Otherwise, I put a bullet in your head right now. And believe me when I tell you that I can pull the trigger faster than you. Daniel gritted his teeth, blinking back hot, angry tears and trying to swallow the taste of ashes in his mouth. They had him bagged and tagged, and he knew it. Sure, he might be able to kill the wolfman before the breed shot him, but what in the nine hells would that accomplish? He couldn't stop them, but he still had a chance to save Victor. All right he said. I'll do it, but I want you to let me take care of my friend. Sure, kid, the breed said, his voice softening. Just put down the gun. Nice and slow, okay? Daniel nodded once, then took his finger off the trigger and pulled the gun slowly away from the wolfman, setting it on the deck behind him. He didn't look at the breed as he got to his feet. Packages over there, he said nodding in the direction of the rear port side of the cargo bay. "'It's just a little thing, about twenty centimeters square. It has a shipping label, but it hasn't been scanned in.' "'I see it,' the breed said. He moved toward the back of the cargo bay, but his slow, wary steps told Daniel that he was still covering him with the gun. "'Like I care anymore.' He ignored the wolfman, who was now getting to his feet and retrieving his gun— and went into the corridor, where Victor lay huddled around a slowly growing bloodstain. Prophets save us, Daniel murmured, rushing to Victor's side. Stay with me, Victor. Victor didn't respond as Daniel turned him over on his back. Daniel quickly unzipped the coveralls down to the waist and pulled them open, exposing Victor's bloody abdomen. Daniel put his hand over the gunshot wound and focused his healing power, channeling as much energy as he could into repairing the damage. Slowly, gradually, the flesh knit itself back together, pushing the bullet outward and upward as the tissues mended. The flow of blood diminished, then ceased altogether. Daniel sat back on his heels, closed his eyes, and took a few long, heavy breaths. After a minute, he opened his eyes again and turned his attention to Victor's mangled knee. He felt dizzy and winded, but he forced himself to focus his power again. This was why Victor had brought him along, and he wasn't going to let him down. He placed his hands around the knee and poured out all the energy he had left. Through sheer force of will, he commanded the broken fragments of bone and tattered cartilage to fuse back together, the torn muscles and ligaments to reattach themselves, the shredded skin to grow back whole and unblemished. After two minutes, the last of Victor's injuries were finally healed. Daniel fell over on his side and sprawled on the floor, limp and exhausted. His head was throbbing. He could feel blood trickling from his nose. He couldn't have moved if he had wanted to. Instead, he lay there, watching, as Victor slowly sat up, blinking. The older man looked down at himself, and ran his hands over his bloody but intact torso. His doppelcharm was still in place, and his dark skin had turned a sickly gray from the blood loss, but he seemed to be coming around quickly. He looked at Daniel with an expression of amazement and respect. Daniel smiled weakly. He was going to be lucky to stay awake for another five minutes. He had nothing left to give. You're welcome, he said his voice barely above a whisper. A muscle in Victor's jaw twitched, and he shook himself. He looked around himself on all sides, then reached down and picked something up. He looked over at a hole in the adjacent bulkhead and put his hand over it. There was a soft grinding noise of metal on metal, followed by a pop, as something came loose and smacked into his open palm. He clasped his fingers around it, Balling his hand into a tight fist. He turned back to Daniel and opened his fist, showing him two bloody and deformed bullets. There was a cold fire in his eyes like nothing Daniel had ever seen before, a barely restrained fury that promised bloody death to anyone who got in his way. Oh, wait, Daniel slurred, trying to fight off the black haze that was even now creeping in around the edges of his vision. I made a deal. Victor rose to his feet and headed for the door to the cargo bay, not sparing him another glance. I didn't, he said. And that's the end of Chapter 9. Come back next time when Victor faces off against Dell and Trace for round two. Quentin Bufogel said, "Writing is the dragon that lives underneath my floorboards, the one I incessantly feed, for fear it may turn and devour my ass. So grab a lantern and a bucket of fresh words, because it's feeding time. Here's your weekly writing report. this update covers the week of December 19th through December 25th. I wrote 4,220 words this week, over the course of 6.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 649 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 252 days without breaking my chain. This week was the Christmas holiday, of course, and the writing took a backseat to cooking, cleaning, Zoom calls with family, and spending time with my wife and our dogs. I did set aside at least a little time to write on six out of seven days this week, making modest but steady progress on Honor Bound. I'm continuing to follow Natasha as she realizes the danger that Honor is in and tries to figure out a way to help her, as well as getting herself out of the mess that she's in. This is the part of the story where I've done the least amount of planning, I have a few different ideas about how the next few chapters will go, but I'm not sure which one I'm going to end up using. Right now, I'm just trying to stay in Natasha's head and let her make the decisions that make the most sense to her at the moment. We'll see where that takes us. The story is now in chapter 37, and the manuscript is over 102,000 words. Contrary to what I had planned, I did not do any more work on the podcast this week, but it was for a good reason my friend K.T. Brisky hired me to narrate a story for her podcast, Apex Magazine. It was my great privilege to perform the story Mr. Death by Alex E. Harrow, the tale of a junior reaper who gets stuck with the job of ushering a two-year-old boy across the river of death. This is an emotionally powerful and beautifully written story, and I'm grateful for the chance to bring it to life for Apex. You can hear Mr. Death in their episode for February 2021, which should be available by the time you hear this. That's at apex-magazine.com. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback@gmail.com. at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641 715 Three nine zero zero, Then enter extension 255 followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author chris lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press.